This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder, and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm here in Bend, Oregon uh, this week, and sitting across from me here at uh, Boneyard Beer in uh, Bend, Oregon, is uh, Tony Lawrence, co-founder and brewmaster of uh, Boneyard Beer. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Hey, thanks, Jamie. Hi, everybody. Glad you could stop by Boneyard today and have a chat with us and take a look around. As I uh, as I told you before we started, and actually as I was trying to pitch you on the idea of doing this podcast, you know, we, f- I f- we fell in love with uh, Boneyard when Emily Hutto, uh, one of our uh, writers, wrote a story about Boneyard, and we reached out and said, "Hey, Tony, want to provide a recipe to go along with the with the story?" And uh, instead of getting a recipe, we got sixteen hundred words from Tony on, and I remember it was being sixteen hundred words uh, very specifically on. Uh, almost a stream of consciousness uh, kind of approach to how you develop recipes, how you think about how you make those decisions. Uh, And I thought it was really thoughtful, really interesting. And uh, yeah, so I was really looking forward to having this conversation. All right. Well, thanks for the comments on that. Yeah. I remember putting in some work. I was traveling around the world and Emily and I were shooting some emails back and forth and, and uh, we had plenty of time to work on it. And I don't recall specifically how we came up with um some of the criteria that we put down on paper, but I really, I enjoyed that project. Uh, if you're not a subscriber to the magazine, you should definitely subscribe. You can go uh, check out, I think that's issue 20 of the magazine uh, and it's available to all subscribers, um, you know, using our digital apps on Android and, uh, and iOS. But self-promotion aside, before we get started, nearly uh, 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel G&D ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize like Russian River, Nkasi, Jack's Abbey, Sam Adams, and more trust G&D to chill the beer you love. And Boneyard. And Boneyard? Yeah, 27 horse. Nice, nice. Good experience? Absolutely. Awesome. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com and tell them that Tony Lawrence proves. <laughs> also, uh, Old Orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of Beer City, USA. As the industry blending experts, they supply major national brands and growing breweries alike. They've been the best kept juicy secret in craft beverage for years, but now the secret's out. Breweries across the board are experiencing a seamless transition to Old Orchard as their new juice supplier. So hop aboard the Old Orchard Fruit Train. Their sample kit starter pack is waiting for you at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Tony, you've got a long uh, history in brewing. Why don't you start us out by uh, kind of walking back through it and uh, kind of explaining how you got uh, to launch Boneyard and then be here today this many years after that. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. Um, first, got to love beer, and just about every young male does. And sure. uh, I was traveling through the Northwest in the late 80s and early 90s, and I ended up in Bend, uh, kind of following the snowboard thing. And I ended up getting a job at Deschutes Brewery, in the kitchen, no less. And um, that was an amazing time to be on board with a, the sort of the emerging, sp- the, the, um, the young emerging space of the craft brewery world. Do you and, remember what year that was or thereabouts? Yeah, that was 1988. Well, yeah, it was the winter of 88, 89. Wow. It was the winter of 88, 89, so we're, we're looking more at uh, uh, probably 1990. Okay. Actually, in my office, I should go get it uh, for my own memory. Uh, after I left the shoots in 2001, they kind of went back to the brew logs and looked at see uh, when I started in the brew house and what brew number and then the last brew number and kind of added those up and the number of brews that I was around for. So anyhow, I ended up at Deschutes in 89 in the kitchen, but I quickly became friends with John Harris, the original brewmaster at Deschutes. He's um, now at Ecliptic. Ecliptic, yeah. Um, Russell Shire Award, John Harris, and that means a lot to me because we became friends. He was interested in talking about the mountain and skateboarding and snowboarding and things like that, and and we'd drink beer and talk about beer and the things I just mentioned. And it wasn't that... After becoming quick friends and, and good friends, he invited me to come work in the brewing side of things at Deschutes Brewery rather than the kitchen. And so instead of washing dishes, I started washing kegs. That was 1989. Uh, I worked at Deschutes till November of t- 
2001. So it was about 11 years there or something like this. And it was an amazing, amazing journey, really. Uh, it just shoots. We were on the 10-barrel brew house over there on Bond Street originally, and we built the 50-barrel brew house in 93, 94. And so, you know, really what I'm trying to portray there is 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 being with a company from a growth curve from, you know, maybe one to 2,000 barrels annual production up to about 130,000 barrels when I left, or, you know, maybe three or four brews a week on a 10-barrel brew house to... 60 brews a week on a 50 barrel brew house so you know outside of the in-house education um that we ran at Deschutes and you know I had a high high level of attention to um continued education and in-house education and just very proactive and progressive with a lot of concepts such as that but being along on that journey you know for all the capex projects and all the things that go correct and or incorrect are really a big part of um the great foundation or building blocks for my brewing career um, so, so 2001, you, you left the shoots. Um, talk to me about the founding of, uh, of Boneyard. Well, there's a whole lot of stuff between 2001 and Boneyard, but, uh, uh, what'd you do in the meantime? Okay. Well, yeah, you know, Tim Gossick was one, another one of my mentors from the shoots days. Um, he was the brewmaster after John Harris left and he went off to start his own project in Tempe, Arizona. And, um, he kind of was. Um, inviting me to come along with him for quite a while. I wasn't so sold on Arizona from a Northwest guy, but eventually I took the opportunity. And for a lot of the reasons, I think a lot of uh, young professionals or professional brewers are interested in, which is as much of a great time as I had at Deschutes and stuff, but bring 60 brews a week. The SOPs were on lockdown. You know, the job descriptions were on lockdown. I was looking to be a little bit more creative. And here was right. an opportunity to join Tim, brew two, 3,000 barrels a year, um, we were going to brew all, we did brew all traditional German style lagers back then, which was a little outside the box. Um, but it was about the, you they know, were just about to break big then too, right? <laughs> the but, next year was going to be the big year for lagers, right. craft lagers. Uh, you know, well, the whole craft space in Phoenix at that time was pretty slow. Sure. sure there were some sure. breweries like Four Peaks and things coming, coming, but the overall consumer was still drinking, uh, well, you know what they're drinking. Um, but it was really just an opportunity to go work with Tim, who has always been a mentor to me. Yeah. But to work in a smaller house where, create, you know, not that we weren't being creative at Deschutes Brewery, but my my role was now to be much more creative between the calculator and the pen and paper and outside the boardroom to be able to um, make some decisions on the floor as to the direction of the flavors and things that we're looking to produce. So it was just an opportunity to go be my first role as a, you know, not that Tim was the brewmaster. I'll give myself the job to as the head brewer there. So it was a good opportunity so then uh talk to me about like how the idea for boneyard came about and how you ended up coming back here and then how you ended up getting this whole thing off the ground you know i, I think uh during my time in arizona i was uh, so i've been in the industry for 15 years or something by now and i wasn't going to leave it it's what i know um best for my skill set and what i enjoy the most so about that time i had started to possibly build up enough confidence as a professional like hey you know i've been doing this for 10 or 15 years this is really a bona fide professional uh, opportunity for me so i started drawing up some napkin business plans which is like you know maybe one day i'll be able to get out on my own and start my own brewery and i started drawing up some concept breweries in phoenix which was to buy an old gas station and um and, um, you know, take one of the two or three bays and put a very small brew house in there. And then in the other bay or two, um, you know, chop some motorcycles or cars up. So that's, you know, a lot of what I was interested in. Um, probably shouldn't do both under the same roof, but <laughs> I was going to give it a shot. You, you know, the, that brewery, those breweries do exist now. <laughs> that exact model does exist now. I'm slightly jealous. Yeah. <laughs> But so that kind of started back then, you know, the, yeah, the confidence yeah. mentally and starting to draw a few things up, not really understanding whether this would come true or not at some point in the future, but it started there. Yeah. Um, I left Phoenix in 2005 and I was traveling up and down the West Coast looking for some employment, um, basically targeting, targeting the Bay Area. I was always interested in San Francisco, so I did some interviews with Lagunitas and various things. And I was driving up and down the 101 and stopped in, saw Brindelson, Matt, over at Firestone. And he's like, Tony, how come you haven't applied with me yet? And I was like, oh, good question, Matt. So uh, what an honor when Matt's kind of in your, in, you know, looking sure, at sure. you going, hey, you know, come talk to me about a job. So we did that, went through that process, and I took a job with Firestone for a year. 
and uh, that was amazing. So it really kind of rounded out my, in my opinion, a lot of um, my professional experiences under 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 other people's houses. Yeah. So that was about 2005, and after that, I kind of said, "Well, I think I'm really ready." Remember that uh, that, that gas station. Uh, Retired gas station brewery chop shop. I still was kind of dreaming about that. And so really Firestone was the last salary career I ever had. And I kind yeah. of just stepped off, lived on a credit card for a while and used my imagination, was able to stay afloat, um, helping other breweries do some projects of various capacities. That, um, and then that's where it all started, really, oh, through these travels around the country and the world and helping other breweries um, do some installations or some other you know, cleaning up some other operational aspects. Um, I mean, again, I was building that confidence that I needed to step out on my own. And this just so happens also starting to collect some equipment. Could be an old keg, it could be uh, a glycol chiller, it could be anything. So that went on for a number of years. And so now we're closing on 2010. I had enough equipment. You've been hoarding equipment. uh, Yeah. I had been hoarding equipment in my garage over here in Bend, Oregon. And, uh, my buddy was moving out of a little shop that he had on the west side of Bend where he did concrete countertops. And I always looked at that spot and said, that'd be a perfect startup location for me. My, it came true. Drew called me one day and he says, hey, you still want that spot? And I said, I sur- certainly do. Now it's go time. You know, it's like, okay, I'm paying $2,000 a month to rent this 2,000 square feet or whatever it was. And just got to work chiseling out some concrete and putting some floor drains in and, and, and continue to focus on, on how to make it to get to startup. So about May of 2010, we pulled off our first, you know, we got all of our licensing and all that type of things in place and we're able to put a brew or two in the tanks. Funny, um, going back to, you know, the boneyard kind of bits and pieces that we used that we were able to acquire to get this thing going. Um, I remember, uh, so I ended up getting my, I had a five barrel brew house is where I started building. And then before we even got licensed to build on that, to get brewing on that, we ended up with 20 barrel brew house from Nick, Nick Floyd helped me out and gave me that for, you know, some sort of, sort of IOU later. <laughs> so that was a big starter yeah, kit. That really yeah. helped. But I still only had five barrel fermenters. Right. So we'd half fill the 20-barrel brew kettle to like 13 barrels, <laughs> boil it down to X, and then uh, tr- transfer it over through the heat X over to t- and split that wart between two five-barrel fermenters. <laughs> uh, built my own keg washer it was pretty funny yeah. so it was a lot of good stuff like that and that was a uh, you know may of two th- you know 2010 so you what was the idea when you started brewery you know at 2010 the the entire beer world was different than it is now um obviously in the ensuing years you know we've had hazy beers and pastry beers and taproom models and everything pop up um you know but when you launched bone art and even to this day you really uh you focus on draft right um that seems to be where the major focus for this brewery is. Um, was there kind of a guiding reason for that, or was it just the thing you could do and you went with it? The latter is just the thing we could do. <laughs> we went with it. We had no, you know, there was there's so much intention here. No, yeah, it's just no. we can do it. Yeah. Well, there's both of what we just spoke about are are, yeah. are true, which is is um, well, my original intention clearly. Um, I was going to be a pack. You know, I come from the packaging brewing world, yeah, and so I know sure. packaging well, and I believe in it. And and that was my goal. I was going to be a packaging brewery. And I, here's a mock up of my can from way back then. Um, and I was working with a can equipment manufacturer and everything. Um, but at the end of the day, as quick as we could reinvest financially in our in ourselves, add fermenters, buy kegs, add fermenters, buy kegs. Um, we just remained sold out. That was it. So we got to 30,000 barrels and we were still sold out. And we, you know, and our capacity here was maybe 40,000 barrels that we built over the years. And I'm already at 30 something thousand barrels and, and, and sold out. And all of a sudden you look at the writing on the wall. It's like either we build another brewery and, and do the whole CapEx thing one more time and keep going, or maybe we'll just sort of let off the gas pedal and see how this feels. So that's kind of how it is. So you never made that jump into putting beer into into cans or putting it into bottles. Well, you do small batches into, you know, into bottles and stuff now. Um, no, we we never did. And you know, uh, I uh, packaging is a, a one, I'm pretty pretty strong in the packaging world from an installation or operational standpoint and experience. Um, 
we'd bought, I, truthfully, I bought two different canning lines. So one of them still sitting in the warehouse across the street. It, <laughs> it, it was probably, you know, cost twenty five or $30,000. It was yeah. about the most painful expense I ever um, could have thought of back then. And uh, But we were committed to the packaging at one point in time. Yeah. Um, um, so I plugged that in once and unplugged it and it's been mothballed ever since. Um, we also commissioned a pretty high, high, high level package canning line, you know, 150 containers per minute type of line. Um, put the down payments on it, d- designed and engineered most of it. And then before accepting delivery of it, I sold it to a colleague of mine here in town because once again, we got to that magic intersection where we weren't sure how we could feed this monster because uh, of, you know, um, capacity concerns. That is the craziest thing I've heard, that you just didn't feel like you could make enough beer in order to put enough out into package because you were selling so much out there into the market just on draft. And that's kind of our story. Um, you know, I know oh, we're leaving a lot on the table, and, you know, I get jealous uh, to some degree when I see my colleagues at the in-cap at the, at the local market and things like this, and I certainly wish I could be at the in-cap too. And who knows? Maybe someday we will be. But it was just our path, and we didn't want to f- overthink it, over feel it, anything. It just felt right to us. There also seems in Oregon to be a, a pretty big kind of growler and now crowler market where you know people who drink craft beer are used to going and getting it filled up and taking it home and drinking it. And so there's some sort of kind of cultural support for uh, for that kind of approach for the brewery. That definitely factored in a little bit, or we had fun watching that grow with us. Because yeah. you're right, all of a sudden we were in the backyard barbecue and some other places um, outside, you know, say in Portland, Oregon, or something like this. Where um, so that that helped sales a little bit, but I just enjoyed watching that that growth and, and that process happen. But not at the <laughs> at first, I was like a little disappointed of people co-packaging my beer. <laughs> you know, sure. Uh, oh, did they purge that container with CO two or what right, have you? And right. now they're shipping across the country, and so I was a little I was a little apprehensive, but it ended up being a great a great a great thing for us. So what's the what's the production of the brewery right now, thereabouts roughly? Yeah, um, I'm guessing in 2020, 2020 $28,000, $30,000 uh, barrels. Wow. Um, so we're kind of flat right now, which I'm, I'm perfectly happy with. We let off the gas pedal a couple years ago. In Being terms flat of, at 28000 uh, to 30000 is not such a bad thing. We're really happy, you yeah. know. And, uh, you know, I guess um, kind of going back, talking about the packaging or where we're at currently, we really have a really comfortable footprint here in our in our building. So a little bit the way I looked at it was, you know, when I was brewing at Deschutes for quite a while, you know, we ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and that's what we had to do, and that was amazing. But I don't have to do that here at Boneyard, and, um, and, the, and the, the space is changing. And so to try and create an environment here to chase all these new barrels of beer we want to produce annually just didn't feel right. So at the end of the day, we brew about three brews a day, Monday through Friday. It's kind of like the bankers of brewing world, 50, <laughs> we're on a 50-barrel right. brew house. So that's our capacity. We can make about 15 brews. A, we're probably about 13 brews a week. Yeah. It's a really user-friendly system. The boys start at 6.30 in the morning. They're done at 7 p.m. Monday through Friday. We've got a little weekend duty, you know, carbonation, check gravities, and uh, we start over the following week. And that all marries up really well with the cubic feet of the building. So we're just nestled in here just right can make just enough beer. Um, we don't have wasted space. If we wanted to try and create another 30% by volume or whatever the number may be, we'd have to add on to the building. So, And then tie that to what I just said, three brews a day, five days a week, the bankers of, or bankers of brewing just works well for us. That's, you know, employee friendly. And, uh, you know, if you're not solely chasing a bottom line of never ending, increasing revenue, uh, and you can operate a business with some other bottom lines like the well-being of your customer, well-being of your employees, um, and the well-being of the overall craft market and the integrity of your product and, you know, making sure that the experience of, of your customers have with your product is always good. Um, you know, then those are also some really good bottom lines to kind of work through life with in a business. It's been fun the whole time, but it's even becoming more fun for us right now. As again, as everything you just said, and we just sort of settle in. I, I, uh, this may not be the most wise thing to say on the radio, but I feel like I'm being more of a brewer than I have been in years. You know, the conversations that we have in the boardroom 
um, have been more focused on those type of conversations than other expansion projects or other considerations for emerging markets or what have you. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of those brewing things. I know we've been talking about business here at the start, and we definitely want to uh, to get into how and why and uh, what you do in that kind of brewing uh, kind of approach. But uh, before we do that, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, a special message from our friends at Pabst Brewing Company. Out of the West, a storm surprised. Swept down on Captain Pabst. That mariner and gentleman, his actions swift and fast. He sailed the seabird against the throws. Routing twain wind and fear. He took haste to protect his kin, but the port was far from near. Pabst's intuition proved him right, and bore a friendly coast. The mighty seabird crashed aground. And to that, we raise a toast. For while the seabird indeed was lost, safe were kin and crew. And without this mighty ship to steer, Captain Pabst began to brew. Captain Pabst, Seabird IPA, exclusively available in Wisconsin and Chicago. So, Tony, uh, let's talk about, maybe we talk about hoppy beers first. You know, when I think about Boneyard, I think about um, RPM, I think about Bonafide Pale Ale, I think about, um, you know, your double and triple IPAs, and I think about this kind of dank northwest approach to uh, you know, this kind of West Coast IPA idea that uh, that has a very distinct and kind of very Oregon flavor to it. Talk to me a little bit about designing those style of beers, because I also feel like they have a common thread that helps that kind of flavor hang together across some of the different uh, kind of, you know, from the pale ale to the IPA, the double IPA and up. Um, talk to me about how this kind of regionalization of this kind of Northwest IPA style uh, came to be, um, where you guys sought inspiration, how you inspired other people and kind of made it a thing. Hmm. I'll give that a shot. Am I, or am I misreading this completely? I don't, you know, maybe that's the case. You know, I think every generation has its own journey, uh, in, and 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 I'm I myself or Boneyard is no different. What we're putting on the table um, is what we want to brew as best we can from uh, our all of the accumulation of our history of brewing experiences and sure. and and mentors or inspiration. And for me at Boneyard, you know, um, as I bounced around the country, I hung out at Three Floyds for a while, and like I said, it was a Firestone for a minute. Everything I learned at at um, at uh, Deschutes, and then, uh, you know, just really having some other inspirations. When you took, you know, you even if you didn't have personal experiences looking at, the, you know, um, beers that Vinny produces at Russian River, and then you just get out your pen and paper, and I took what I knew about all those and and try to just pick it apart and take bits and pieces of all that to be be myself as as as, as a little culmination of all the um things I liked that everybody else was doing. Um, so clearly there's some Northwest in there, there's some Northeast in there, whatever it is. So that's really how we did it here. Sure, sure. Of course, we've got our own house flavor because, you know, uh, every brewery does. It's just yeah. either it's the water or certain other aspects of our brewing st- uh, procedures or operations. The way that you select hops and what, you're, what you are selecting for when you do it too. You know, uh, I, you know um, kind of, I starting to feel like an old school brewer is these, yeah. you know, I just came back from SF beer week a couple nights ago and, you know, hanging out with my friends down there that are a couple decades younger than me and they're so fired up and I'm most definitely fired up, but I'm not following all the hop varieties around <laughs> as, as intensely as they are right, in, right. In, in my, in my playbook or my bag of tricks or my toolbox is all these varieties that, you know, the ones that I grew up on and, sure. and, and, and some new ones, but so there's a definitely a changing the guard or a shift and everything and and um you know um that's amazing um we're playing around with some of these new hop varieties but you know for me here it's 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 uh, the 
types of hops you use, as we were just speaking about, and, and how many and when and what's the application. And um, luckily for me, really, to be honest, uh, 10 years ago here in Bend or the Northwest, um, it was just this, where we, what we are familiar with now is just getting going. Right. And there's so many amazing breweries now. It's just is. Again, I was just at SF Beer Week. I couldn't believe what I was tasting. Just everywhere you turn. Sure. And we put some pretty darn good beer on the table, but we just did it just before everybody else in here, <laughs> here around the Northwest. You know I mean? Right, Not right. really. I mean, come on, let's take a look. There's all the the shoes and wind mirrors and Bridgeports and all these type of things. Bridgeport, excuse me. Sorry about that. Um, so really, I th- you know, sometimes for us, I think we got some recognition just because of the pure, the t- what we put on the table and when we put it on the table. You know, I guess in any kind of market, um, being an innovator at any stage of, uh, you know, of that time frame, uh, or I guess your definition as an innovator changes over time. And it is only a relative judgment in, in, in the kind of time frame in which that judgment is made. Um, however, like, you know, when we drink a beer today, it still hangs there, you know, the same kind of thing when you drink Brennelson's Union Jack, like it still hangs, like you taste this beer and it still tastes fantastic and you want, you know, and so naturally then like the, the mechanism of my mind goes to, um, there's a special challenge of designing a beer that is both current and has that kind of capacity to be timeless. Um, you know, from your perspective as a brewer that's, uh, you know, been around since the, the late eighties or 1990, what is, you know, how do you think about designing those, those kinds of beers so that they're not, they are of the trend now as that trend is developing, but that they also have the legs to kind of, you know, withstand age and time and customers that grow older and customers whose frame of reference changes. You know, there's one thing in beer that's probably never going to change is, is the is 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 kind of some of the building blocks. Before you can talk about how interesting something may be, there's the basics, which is is the beer very clean and well and and well balanced. For example, yeah, those are you know to be honest, my order of operations and for for a beer that you know whether I'm producing it or I'm at a brew fest right your brewery and I'm drinking it. I'm looking at to see how clean it is, how well balanced it is, and and then how interesting it is. Because a beer that is has the potential to be interesting, if if it's not clean and balanced, well, then you have nothing. Um, so, I think those are some of the timeless attributes that you always have to pay attention to. Is a beer that's clean and balanced. Maybe my hops maybe are missing this t- this year versus last year, or some some other raw material um, from a hop standpoint, usage rates or, or applications. But I'm um, always keep the beer clean and interest uh, and balanced, and then hopefully layer some interesting on top. Is kind of what we're trying to do here now. So that concept of balance, I f- I love this one because you know it can be whatever anybody wants it to be, right? You know, mm. the um, and it kind of it becomes that catch all for for you. Um, what defines that kind of balance, and what you know do you specifically look for in in that you know these beers that you're tasting to and uh, to find that kind of balance. You know, things can balance at really loud levels. Things can balance at a quiet level. Things can, um, you know, balance in different kinds of ways. You know, there are, you know, multiple, you know, variables there that can all kind of achieve some kind of concept of balance. So, you know, so for you, where do you balance on that kind of thing to kind of sure make it work or what works for you? Well, you know, our, th- you know, our, our flagship, our, our house IPA, RPM, really, in my opinion, kind of hits on everything you're just mentioning right there, which is these various intersections and how they all kind of come together to be one song. And so um, back when I was a younger brewer, I was super into hops, which I still am. Um, but I didn't quite understand this balance game yet. And so I like dry beers too. So I made tried to make really, really dry beers with lots and lots of hops. Hmm, they were always good. But there was something just off, and and I finally figured out that I, I just needed a little bit more, you know, malt backbone, or, yeah. or su- even we could call it sweetness, yeah, to stand up with the hops. And so it's just these intersections. Um, you know, I think uh, you can either be too dry or too sweet, or um, well, you can't be too bitter or not have enough bitterness. Um, you know, you can throw a, m- a million hops at something, but that doesn't mean it's going to necessarily be the top of um, hop profile or aroma you're looking for. So it's just this unique intersection. I think it's very difficult to find in a brewery sometimes. Do you 
change that as the years go on. You know, now at the same time, like consumers tastes, obviously people drinking beer now have a, um, capacity for consuming sweetness that uh, is something relatively new over the last three or four or five years you know compared to where they were you know say 10 years ago um, it's it's a surprising uh, tolerance for the you know this kind of uh, residual sweetness and uh, and finishing high finishing gravities um, do you have you all gone back and looked at your recipes over that kind of time and pushed things in any kind of direction because general trends and consumer expectations were going in specific ways? I think we wouldn't be doing our job for always not taking a look and in either looking for procedural drift or maybe looking to force or look for change um, depending on what we're looking for here at Arbury ourself, um, for whatever reason that may be. I got to admit, and it's not a very t- good um, tactical decision from a business standpoint, you know, where I'm a little just kind of standoffish on trying to follow trends and stuff. Um, um, we don't want to get caught not making adjustments over a decade or two, but I'm not, we're not really chasing specific things um, so much. Um, we've got a big team of guys here. We do the sensory every week. Everyone's got a good head on their shoulder. got lots of experience. So we talk about these type of things and we just do what feels natural to us. Um, Sometimes, you know, going back to the RPM, uh, it rides, for me, it rides right on this cusp of where I think it needs to be, this intersection where it's got just enough sweetness to keep it all going and let the hops dance off that. But then sometimes if the if I just get one or two ticks to the right or left and that sweetness pops up a little bit, I'm totally super bummed out. So <laughs> yeah, so I'm, we're playing right on that threshold, and uh, at least for, that's how I perceive it with RPM. Is that a kind of standard Cali ale yeast West Coast kind of approach, or do you have uh, you know, a, a special secret boneyard uh, approach to it? Um, well, I think it's it's brewing salts, it's uh, water chemistry, it's mash temperatures, and and different considerations like that. For the most part, that we're playing with when it comes to looking at, at that that consideration. Um, going back to kind of not necessarily trying to be different or follow anybody. Um, you know, our our house yeast is the Fuller's ESB 1968, and we've never, sure, we've brewed on Cal or 01 or whatever you want to call it through the years. Um, we'll borrow some from a, a colleague here in town, what have you, and, and check it out. We've even brewed RPM on it a couple times to see if we're missing out on something. But we just stick to our yeast. You know, something we do here that's kind of interesting, at least for me, is a uh, we're a true uni tank brewery. You know, again, we don't package, so uh, we, we don't filter. We fine with biofine, and so we... We ferment, um, we dry hop, we, you know, um, mature, we carbonate and clarify all uh, inside the fermenter and then go straight to packaging. Um, so um, I guess the reason I bothered to mention that is the 1968 is a highly flocculative yeast and, 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 and I happen to like it a lot as well. And so from, you know, whether it was that was the brewer speaking or the, or the businessman speaking, we're trying to make about 14 day beer here on average. Hmm. And so the yeast just gets out of the way for us. It does the work. It's clean. Doesn't throw a diacetyl, and gets out of the way and allows us to just repeat process. You keep it relatively cool. Uh, kind of keep esters down, or we do kind of. You know, some of the guys here with me, um, we've all been. You know, going back to the shoots days, I've got Mark Kenyon, I've got um, John Van Duzer, I've got Phil Bray. Um, and uh, Bill Krieger, all guys that we used to work at the shoots together in the 90s. And uh, we're all big loggerheads. And it, even at the shoots, we kind of fermented our ale strains cool. Yeah. Um, so either we like that or we, just how we learned, I'm not sure. But we're not necessarily cool. We, we kind of do a little thing where we, 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 we cool in at 66 and we bump one degree F up a day. So, hmm. and it kind of, you know, for us, it kind of hits, um, starts cool. We kind of follow the fermentation curve. As we slowly bring the temperature up, and we hit the diacetyl rest right about when it needs to be, and um, it's just kind of our house thing. Interesting, interesting. Talk to me a little bit about hops. Now you're out here on uh, in the Pacific Northwest in a state that grows a whole lot of hops, and you're only a couple hour drive from Yakima Valley in Washington, which also grows a lion's share of hops in the country. Um, you know, how does that impact how you brew, how you, uh, taste and smell? And then of course there's, uh, you know, as I 
got out of your parking lot right here, there's a very <laughs> pungent, a very pungent smell. <laughs> it seems to have to, you know, I'm from Colorado, so I'm used to it, but, uh, you know, that does seem to have to have its own sensory impacts for it. You know, you, you, Yes, of course, we're very fortunate that Northwest seems to be the home of uh, the type of hops that, you know, people are looking for to brew IPAs, and, and us included. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of fun each year. A lot of my friends from all the world descend upon the Northwest to go do their hop selection and swing through town. We, you know, do collaboration brew where I show them sure. around the Northwest a little bit. So it's a lot of fun. You reason I say that is because people travel from all over the world to come to this little slice where we're at to look at these hops. and. We have long-standing relationships with the brokers up there through our days at the shoots or everything in between now and then. And um, so we're just very fortunate. We love going up there and, um, you know, doing the hop selection. And uh, it's very obviously critical for an IPA or hop-forward brewery to have such unique, I wouldn't call it unique, people flying from everywhere, but, you know, that that that, that access is, uh, you know, and it, it helps that, we're just big enough to get the contracts that we right. need, which gives us the privilege of rubbing hops. Some people are unfortunate through their usage rates. They don't quite qualify for that. But you know what? They still make great beer with the hops that, that are just spot market sold to them. When you're rubbing hops, you know, what is, uh, what does that process in your mind look like? Cause you've been doing it for a lot of years. <laughs> um, you know, when you're evaluating hops, uh, what is, what does that look like for you? Great question. You know, um, well, of course, for me, it starts off with the visual aspects. We'll look at the different lots. I'll take some little notes, just a visual, you know, um, tight or loose, um, dry or moist, or uh, seeds or no seeds, burnt tips, things like that. So I'll let that be a fairly large percent of my um, my weighted averages of how I, what my determination is going to be and what we're looking to select. Now, when it comes to just getting to you drink what, first with your eyes, right? <laughs> what, what happens next for me, and I don't, is uh, man, I just I know myself. I seem to just always want to choose the something that has the biggest, most bold aroma, you yeah. know. And, and and but you know the the person next to me is looking could be looking for something just slightly more delicate. But you know I'm always just looking. Give me give me the power. But I don't think it's a wise choice. Um, and then you know <laughs> the more delicate aroma can pro- can bring something to right. the table um, for your in product that I, you know, you'd have to run a control test, and I don't have that opportunity to do that. So I'm always just shopping for the biggest aroma. Oil content um, um, seems to be driving me. Um, do you have general it, parameters? I mean, I know other brewers I talk to, you know, have. I mean, uh, some very clear ideas of, you know, the, the window that they're trying to choose within, you know, obviously trying to kind of create consistency in their, in their product. And then of course, other brewers I've talked to have, have made it clear that like, you know, if we keep improving this and it keeps getting better, no one's going to complain about it. So they go for that kind of thing. You know, where do you, where do you land in that? Are you, you know, because sometimes if you go big, you're going to end up with something that's a little bit different than what you've had before that, uh, you know, for some people might feel out of character. Um, well, sure. But if you, if you're consistent with going big, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, as well, maybe as that of, is the way that you've kind of done, you know, changed it over the years. You know, a lot of the things that we do around here, yeah. not all of them. Um, you know, I, I, I like to brew with usually any recipe that I put on the table has a minimum of three and maybe as many five different hops blended in there in different, different ratios by weight for various reasons. Yeah. Um, um, and so I have a lot of buffering capacity built into some of the considerations we're speaking of. Um, it seems like that to me anyhow. Um, and that's just so that if there are fluctuations in any of these hops in a given year, that uh, it's not going to completely change the expression of this thing. RPM has five, sometimes six hops in it. Yeah. Pretty much uh, equal usage rates. Um, and um, it's always been that way. Um, that, was, that was from an economic standpoint and from a brewer standpoint. It was just the way I layered it all in. Of course, sometimes we'll be blending years between the harvest for two or three months. And uh, how much change happens in that year to year, and how does that impact uh, you know how you adjust things? I mean, obviously, you're in a production brewery. There are some very specific concerns about making sure that you're working in complete bags. You know that uh, you know um, you know the amount of small tweaking is is not there. But does that? Does that change? And you even mentioned that sometimes there are six. Uh, what would be a condition that would lead you to add a sixth hop into RPM in order to kind of keep it where you want it to be? 
Well, maybe I just there is six ops in RPM, <laughs> so maybe not five or six. Oh, you know, right. one of them's been used oh, to like. I touch you out on a cagey yeah, one, yeah. There, Tony. Well, you know, I spend more time at my desk than I do on the brew deck anymore. It's all right, it's all right. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, but you know. Uh, it, the recipe is built for those the reasons yeah, we speak yeah. of. It has a lot of buffering capacity built into it for availability, for fi- uh, financial yeah. risk, and um, and for cons- consistency. Everyone knows you probably don't want to produce a your flagship IPA and just call it Simcoe IPA and then right. uh, watch the the variations happen from year to year or the availability or the price uh, point. Of those six ops, you know, have you or you know, if you built a core with, you know, a certain type of classic hops and then, um, you know, kind of built a, you know, a balance to that with some kind of more flavor forward, more intense aroma hops. Absolutely. You nailed it. I mean, uh, okay. you know, the economical, uh, and, and, uh, my, from my economical desk is it, it was, uh, you know, you gotta have some cascades in there. They're always going to be you know, six, seven dollars a pound. There will be endless wait. So when we get to hop selection, I can look at ten different lots. Uh, they play well with all the, all other hops. I feel, and so you know, I just thought it would be not wise to not build a decent amount of the platform that we're going to start to extend from using the Cascades, of course, some other older varieties that are classic Centennial, um, and then we started to move into some, you know, uh, uh, Citra and Simcoe and Bravo. Um, to layer through this thing, um, you know, most of those varieties are the a couple of them. They're old standbys. Uh, a, cu- a couple of them are a little bit newer, but not totally new. And you know, the price starts to go up, and availability starts to become a little more scarce from year to year. But we can always work that out um, year by year. Um, hop forecasting is a little bit of a problem. I think uh, we got caught here. Mm, we got caught here in two thousand and. 15 or so because i was building up to build that canning line i was telling you so i was signing hop contracts for fifty thousand barrels of you know because of this canning line i was going to buy so all of a sudden i was super long on my hops because we decided to go a different direction from uh stay away from packaging so there's always a lot of difficulties out there that's probably one of the most we've probably spent a lot you know there's a lot of hours that go into nailing your hop contracts right you know not just getting there to do the selection but making sure we have just the right amount but not too much um there's so much that depends on it i mean obviously like you know you've got hops growers farmers that are choosing to put the stuff in the ground need to make a you know certain amount per acre or, or you know and they tend to operate pretty close to the margins on that i mean these days hops sure. farmers are doing a little better than they have done historically or last decade, but, um, you know, they need to have some upsides because they've had a lot of downsides over the last century. Um, you know, so they need to depend on that. You need to depend on that, you know, but having something like extra 10,000 pounds of hops, uh, on contract means you gotta (laughs) find a place to use them and, uh, or you're going to sit on them and you're going to decrease your contract for the next year. And you're wondering if, if how many of your colleagues are in the same boat. And so therefore not, and then you're wondering how many futures, uh, how, how far, uh, what's their future contracts looking like and how does that can affect the spot market or any other pricing? You know, one consideration we're having here right now, just, just fairly recent, um, um, I don't want to start any rumors. It's just how it is. It's something we've been looking at. I've been thinking about for the last few weeks is, well, I mentioned Cascades being a hop. And we, when I put RPM together 10 years ago, for some of the reasons I mentioned, it should be fairly priced. It should be available. I should have a lot to choose from. Therefore, it all should be fine with that hop. Um, but I think you're starting to see that the acreage of Cascades is being pulled. These farmers, as you were just talking about, are going to grow more uh, hops um, relevant to today's consumer. Um, whatever they may be. So what does that mean? Is the cascade is going to creep up in price? The availability is going to go down. My my selection opportunities are going to decrease. I don't know how long I want to stay that heavily invested in that particular hop variety. I might have to start to look for other options. I think there's one big brewery that's never going to change from that one, and so there's always going to be a market <laughs> for Cascades. I don't think we have to worry about it completely going away. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, when it comes to using hops, you know, what are there any specific techniques that you use to get um, you know the most bang for your buck out of them? Or you know, you brewing West Coast IPAs, but obviously the trend has been to move towards um, you know fewer hot side hops, you know, later and later and later editions. 
back into the whirlpool and pushing more and more of those hops loads into dry hops. Um, you know, for you in terms of like getting your money's worth and getting the most effect out of those kinds of hops, um, you know, how is, how's your technique adjusted for that? Well, so many variables and considerations and especially with all the new cryos and, and what have you, uh, incognito oils and different things. And I've always been really interested in the different hop formats, um, whether it's through um, ease of application, other efficiency of transport, um, or unique um, application opportunities. I think I already said that. And how that might affect the flavor and aroma. You know, here, I got to admit, at the end of the day, um, I love talking about these things with my guys. We try th- things three or four times a year. We don't really have a pilot brew house. Um, if we did, it's our 20-barrel brew house pilot, I guess. Um, <laughs> sure. Your tiny little 20-barrel pilot. Uh, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, our SOP here at Boneyard is kind of old school. We're taking T90 hot pellets. We're getting on the top of the tank. We're dumping them in. We generally do that on about day five. Yeah. Um, so right at the tail end of fermentation, I'm hoping mo- possibly the yeast and metabolic activity can mop up some O2 or something. Maybe there's some thermal currents that are helping to get those hops suspended or um, into solution and, and you know, kind of getting them surfing. All the enzymes something. in those hops are yeah. kicking that yeast back up, yeah. right, and helping it uh, do its thing. And, uh, um, you know, we've got a couple brands that we do a double dry hop in, so we'll take about 25% of the overall weight and come in on day four, and then 75% of the, the, or the rest of the weight on day six. Um, pulling more yeast and hops out of the way in between the two applications. Yeah. Those are, in general, for us, the beers that have a much uh, higher ABV, uh, a, a wider uh, fermentation curve. So, and then, you know, because the higher ABV beers, at least here in theory for us, um, the pounds per barrel usage rate seems to go up. So, since the usage rate went up, it kind of makes sense to us that we can take that weight, split it, and divide it at that 75 25% ratio yeah. and kind of does it divided across a wider, uh, you know, application by a couple of days. seems like to me, it's going to get more surface contact and different things like that. That being said, there's so much new information and, and, and stuff out there. Um, you know, I, I feel like a couple of years ago, we made a beer that probably had, I don't know, five pounds per barrel dry hop in there or something. And, and we thought it was crazy and it was expensive, but we had to give this a try. And Sure enough, it didn't seem to be much more happy than anything else we'd ever done. Yeah. So we wrestle with these considerations too. Obviously, um, um, obviously these high usage rates. There crazy. is that Shellhammer research out there that you did with Jason Perker. You know that uh, yeah they do get to that kind of point where it just it doesn't stay in solution and uh, and, the, and the yields are ridiculously yeah, low yeah. as well. Um, so, you know, do you have any kind of tank recirculation or, or bubbling CO2 through or something to kind of keep those that, you know, that plant matter in the mix in the tank and not just settling out and clogging the stuff up at the bottom? We chat about it all the time. We've done various things through the years, as I'm sure most of my colleagues have. Um, I certainly wish I could have a glass fermenter. Um, we've done lots of table toss, te- <laughs> yeah, top, yeah. tabletop test experiments in, in, in five gallon jars and, you know, we'll just line them up over the counter and do different, yeah. different considerations. Um, I, my SOP, you know, 10 years ago would to be dry hop with T90 pellets day five, we'll call it. And then, um, day six, I'd like to rouse to the bottom and I thought maybe I'm kicking them back up there, but, um, what seemed to happen to me is actually it would just send them right to the bottom. So the hops seem to, to me, they float on top for a few days before they get hydrated enough that they start to trickle down um, through the beer or wort. And um, so hmm, there's so many variables. I, you know, we used to, you know, T45s are a great option. The new T35, um, we we have a brand here, Skunk Ape, which has always been my exploratory beer. We only make it a couple times a year. Um, to play with anything, any hop formats that I feel like messing with or any applications that I can find. Um, so, you know, my original idea with this beer was to try and make an IPA-style beer. This was, it's actually an IRA, but an, an IPA-style beer that would have the flavor and aroma, but I didn't really want to dry hop at all, you know, using some of these high-powered hop essence oils, you know, and then you can get your increased yield. You have low dissolved oxygen, longer shelf life. Um, so I was really chasing these concepts. I was... 
the beer was always really good, but I never quite got the flavor and aroma that I think we're looking for, that at least we're used to getting from the process, um, the typical process. We played with some incognito a couple weeks ago um, in the Whirlpool and in the dry hops. We're kind of taking some incognito, um, mixing it with, with, uh, um, you know, five gallons of hot wort from the whirlpool from some other batch and then we'll mix it with incognito and then dump it into a beer that's you know on day four or day five uh, day three or five for fermentation just looking for unique these new products trying to look at unique applications and mm-hmm. see what we can find from it hopefully it's a beer that smells and tastes really good or maybe as i already mentioned has lower do levels or increased yields a lot of things all the brewers are looking for and nothing concrete yet um Anything else? No. Anything else you've learned from some of these experiments with the kind of advanced op products? No, you know, I mean, I'll try to explain. It. Nothing too concrete, or I'd be, yeah. or it'd be, or it would have developed into SOP, starting yeah. off a procedure here at the brewery. It just hasn't happened, but okay. I keep looking, I sure, keep going sure. for it, and I won't give up. Um, but it still seems to be T ninety. Going to some of your other stuff that you're talking about. Um, We've always been real late whirlpool. That's it. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, it's pretty much like ninety-five percent whirlpool and five percent, you know, yeah, in the in the yeah. hot, on the hot side. Um, um, some of the other variables. Um, a lot of our recipes are kind of written old school, so more or less a one-to-one ratio um, of a sort of whirlpool. We'll call it to dry hop ratio. Okay. Um, Although I've been running some two to two to one ratio, so um, for every two pounds in the dry hop, one pound in the whirlpool, um, I seem to follow that rule of thumb. Is the is the ABV goes down? I feel like I need to use more hops than dry hop because there's less ethanol in solution, and I yeah. sort of believe the ethanol rips the oils out and does some yep, good stuff like that. Um, that being said, that was kind of my old school. Oh, you think I'm, it kind of improves the kind of extraction of hop oils in the beer itself? Let's look at it the other way, possibly. Just possibly. I've never read anything on this. But yeah. let's say you have a beer that's 11%. Um, well, our triple IP notorious yeah. is closing on 12%. I feel like all the ethanol in, 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 this, in that liquid sure. solution seems to just ex- be able to tear down the dry hops a little bit more and extract more oil from it. Yeah. It's solvent. Sure. Um, Logically, it makes sense, yeah. That being said, I think you're probably right, and my recipes are kind of old school, but I, I think I'd probably be leaning in the future towards more of, um, you know, t- moving some of the total weights around. And let's just say if I have a one-to-one beer right now, I mean, what's that one going to look like if I um, go 0.75 to 1.25 pounds? So 0.75 Whirlpool, 1.25. So it's a base beer recipe I have yeah. here. We already know the total amount of the hops used. Just move some around and see what happens. Um, so we're really interested in that, as I'm sure most people are. Um, you know, we screwed a beer up here about a year ago, and it was RPM. Huh. And so um, really all that happened was, is um, you know, something happened on the brew schedule, whatever happened. You know, I never really – it didn't get dry hopped. So all of a sudden we were on packaging day, and the operator of the packaging line, thank God he tasted it, and he's like, something's not right here. And so we stopped the line, you know, and we checked it out and went to scour through the brew logs and discuss this and that. And sure enough, the beer was not dry hopped. And, and what I learned there is I'm like, this is RPM without dry hops. It doesn't even taste like a pale ale. <laughs> so going back to our theory about how much yeah. the dry hopping really adds to the flavor and aroma. And, and I still haven't, won't make adjustments to the recipe per se, but I've always been interested in doing what I just talked about is take 25% of the, um, um, you know, it just really taught us a lot. I kind of got backwards on that one. Like, but if I made this beer that doesn't even taste like an IPA just because it didn't have dry hops, what does that mean? So we took a second look at all of our hot side, um, app, um, our hot side, um, hopping procedures and stuff. And we haven't changed anything, but I just threw up such a thought bubble for me that I've still been wrestling with. That is interesting. I mean, I, I guess. You know, if you if you're talking about like a, a chef metaphor, you know, if, if a chef cooks a dish and does leaves out the salt, you know, or only puts half as much salt in, it's probably not going to taste like the dish should taste. I mean, uh, is there an expectation that it should be that thing? Just you know, even if you leave out this kind of you know important part, I mean, does an IPA have to not be dry hopped and taste like an IPA at that point? 
I I feel like it does. Okay, <laughs> but you fair know, enough. Fair um, enough. Fair you know, and so uh, clearly uh, we've you know, I think the I think that that month we made a new pale ale. <laughs> <laughs> or something, you know, it kind of tastes like a pale ale. It just, yeah. get, it just didn't have the firepower of an IPA. So um, here on the podcast, you know, we probably got rid of about 50% of it and, uh, and we, we moved some through our pub and just had some a little bit of fun with the rest. Yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, we've been talking about hops a lot. Yeah. I know you've got a bottle of uh, Goose Cruise oh, here sure. that, uh, you know, just won a medal in a competition in a Lambic uh, style category. Yeah. Um, and I, I know this is kind of a passion project for you. It's certainly not a huge volume play for boneyard beer, but it is something that you love making. And you've got some some fooders and some wood aging going on here in the brewery, kind of on a, on a smaller scale. Um, talk to me a little bit about the formation of this kind of program, and uh, you know, and uh, what it means for you. Nice pop. Uh, Sounds well, good. Well, thanks for asking. You know, I mean, as brewers, we're interested in so many styles and flavors, I'm sure. As a young brewer, I never really got the Trappist stuff that well. Um, but some years later, through some travels and just more experiences and conversations, I discovered the Lambics, and and uh, that's been a big go for me since then. Um, but I really, you know, Lambic style, excuse me. Um but you know we do some kettle sours and things now but i was never really too intrigued by that 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 route to making these you know sour beers because we all know that a a wild fermented beer has a lot more than just lactic acid in it so we want to explore down that path let's give this a try but so you know i i always knew that fooders would be a part of our, our our scope or project here at boneyard at some point in time Strange part, the funny story is one day I got a call from a fooder broker and they're like, I got some fooders. I'm like, oh boy, I've been, it's been on my mind for a long time. And so we cut a deal and I bought one. I thought that would force um, from me just thinking about it to actually a, a development of some program of some kind. So it says the guy that just stashes equipment away and has an entire canning line just sitting in a warehouse across the street. Um, so, you know, I'll try and keep this train moving quickly. And then, you know, I, I went and drank my coffee or whatever have you. And I called this, this broker back. I said, you got one more? She's like, yeah, I got one more. I said, I'll take two. Couldn't sleep that night. I called her back. I go, you got any more? She goes, no, that's all I had. And then she called me back an hour later and said, well, someone just backed out on, you know, one of the orders. She's like, I'll tell you what, if you buy all four of them, um, I'll cover the freight and all the logistics for free, you know, because they were coming from Bordeaux, France. They're 60 hectoliter wow. uh, Sigmund Moreau's. Uh, so, per- so pretty nice stuff. Um, so there there you have it. I knew we were going to be going down this path one day, and next thing you know, I pulled the PO on four 60 hec fooders. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we've been in the wood about five years now on our Lambic program. We're on our second turn of uh, Goose Cruise, which is our Lambic, just straight Oud Goose, uh, Lambic style. We also do a um, a beer called Funky Bunch, which is more or less f- themed or fashioned after your Flemish Flanders red brown. I don't quite yeah. have ever been to identify exactly where the intersection there lies, but that's the overall thing. And we do some that's with some fruit and stuff. Um, is this is so? Is Goose Cruise a uh, single stream beer, you know, or is this a blend? Oh, it's a blend. Okay, <laughs> uh, and and. Uh, and the reason that's super funny is uh, before, right about the when we got Boneyard going, but I was still running around doing some, you know, earning an income, helping other people do things. Needed some uh, little little revenue. Um, I was down. Well, we can just drop names. I was down working at a brewery in Stockton, California, called Valley Brewing Company. Their brewmaster was uh, Steve Altamiri. You sure. Know, um, and now you know, high water. Yeah. And so I didn't know Steve at the time, and actually I felt like the brewer that crossed the picket line, they was in some sort of conflict with employee-employer thing, none of my business, we won't talk about it here. But I came to and uh, came into the brewery, and, and in the back room there was a few different um, um, two-liter plastic containers, and you know, you could just tell it was some sort of biological um, <laughs> bugs that he had been storing. Sure, so sure. There's, there was one marked sour number five, I put it in a... I put it in a in a in a, in a, in a, a bottle of wa- you know water container and brought it home, and just kind of moved this around the brewery for years. Then years later, I meet Steve Altamir. I go, "Hey, Steve, you know it's me. Sorry about those a little awkward back then, but here we are." And I says, "Well, what's sour number five? 
he gets back to me. He says he doesn't he doesn't recall. He gets back to me a day or two later and goes, well, yeah, I just put some ward out in a five-gallon bucket out in the parking lot out back behind the brewery, you know, by the shipyards in Stockton and propagated that up. And that's kind of what we're brewing with. And so it's got its really funny origins, just getting some wort out of parking lot. Yeah. At one point, we th- I threw some extra bret in there, and, and it's it's moved around the brewery to various containers. So I don't know exactly what it is by the time we're here in the fooders. I sent it to Owen way back when, when he was uh, with Y.E. East, I believe, before Imperial. And he tried to isolate and tell me what, what, what he thought we might be seeing in there. But we don't really know. Um, it makes good good tasting product, yeah. and uh, I like the uh, – it's ours. It's, it's ours, so we use it. So you say it's a, this is a blend. Um, if you're aging in fooders, are you blending between fooders? Yeah, we've got the four 60-hack fooders. Two are filled with the Flemish Flanders. Two are filled with the Lambic style. And then we have an old 40 or 60-barrel fermenter we kind of use as a blending tool, a blending tank for these things. So um, we'll taste them and kind of do our best to see what ratios work for yeah. us. So, yeah, I think last time we liked, for example, we liked fooder number three better than fooder number four. Um, but, you know, the overall flavor development, we, you know, so we wanted to start and focus. What we did was we took 50% of three and 50% of four, put it into the blending tank, and then put four into three. Let's see, which way did that go? You know, we're just trying to harvest more and move it around to hopefully get the other fooder to develop have the same flavor development as the fooder we like so yeah there's a lot of blending and stuff going like that and it's actually a blend of old and young lambic at the end of the day um style <laughs> full disclaimer i've always got to add that lambic style um, in there um, it's mostly like you said though it's just more of a labor love sure, brewers are super sure. interested um and then finally um for us we had a lot of fun with it as a brewery that's draft only mainly hops um, now we've got some 750 mil Cajun cork bottle condition Lambic style um, products, and I can give one to my mother or any other <laughs> friends or pass her through like you. Yeah. And so it's not a volume play. It's not a revenue play, but we're certainly sure. having fun doing it. Well, there's a, a really light character to it. The uh, The acidity is pretty tame, um, but I'm really struck by this kind of, you know, a white wine grape Venice character to it that, uh, you know, that seems to jump out at me. It's been a minute since I've had one. Um um, today for me, I feel, I feel like it's a little sweet today. It's usually, it seems a little drier, but everyone's palate's different on different days. And maybe so that's good. selling the white wine character to me. There's also a little bit of, you know, of malt body to it that, uh, even though it is that light, it still, uh, feels like it, uh, is not entirely light. Um, you know, probably run about three pack, three packagings of this. Mark would actually have the better documentation yeah. to follow each, um, particular bottle conditioning and the length of time and sure, different things like sure. this, because there can be a lot of variables there. Um, before we close down here, uh, what we, I'd like to ask the question, um, what success looks like for you. I think this is something that a lot of brewers are starting to ask themselves, especially this many years into their careers in brewing and this many years into operating brewing businesses. Um, what's the goal? What's success? And how will you know when you've achieved it or have you already achieved it? I feel pretty confident. I feel pretty happy and pretty proud and very, uh, very um, excited about what we've achieved so far. Um, either myself or everybody that I surround myself with or has been part of this since the beginning or has been here recently, more recently. Um, so, you know, we again, we let off the gas pedal a few years ago. It's just something didn't look right on the landscape. And so instead of one of the banks and everybody was coming at me to use a bunch of their money and doubled down, we just sort of backed off. And during that time, we were able to sort of look more inward and just sort of understand who we were um, what we're trying to do around here, uh, short, m- near, or long-term. And that's been really useful to us. And we feel really good and really happy where we're at currently. Again, this 13, 15 brews a week, Monday through Friday. Um, our footprint's pretty much Seattle, San Francisco, and Bend. Um, we're not chasing emerging markets. And you know we're really happy. And uh, and what that's allowing us to do is talk like brewers again, more than, than, than engineers. Yeah. And hopefully... Um, being to have you know more focused on sounds really weak but you know less distractions from other conversations and it gets us back into you know just really trying to stay relevant with the liquid offerings we're putting on the table and um so i'm extremely happy i mean i think the beers taste good the team seems to be really happy 
Um, everyone's really grounded and, and having fun doing it. So we're right in a really sweet spot to me. Opening that pub was a little more difficult. <laughs> yeah, a year and a half ago, you you decided to move out of your pure packaging, you know, just your packaging draft, kegging draft, and selling that move, and you actually opened a physical location here in Bend. Um, how's that going? Yeah, well, you know, I you know, I'm much better um, uh, a production brewer than I am restaurateur. We'll yeah, say that, yeah. um, but I think as we chatted about briefly when you got here, it had to happen. Ben yeah. has such great People, interest beer in tourists the beer. Come yeah. to ben. They want to they want a boneyard experience. And you've got you make a lot of draft beer, and people know the brand, and they have an affinity for it. But there was no nowhere to go. So yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's why I did. I'm really happy yeah. to have a house for people to come see and taste our wares, and see that we make something other than RPM. Right. Um, so it's been you know we nailed it on that. I have no, we're only 18 months old. I'll, we'll get it figured out. It looks good, tastes good. One other thing we've been doing, if you got time, is uh, like a lot of our colleagues are kind of branching off with side projects, and we actually do have a warehouse with a canning line in it now on the other side of town. And, um, but we're doing some NA stuff and that was kind of the way okay. that how we got there was cause we were building this pub and, yeah. and Jared and I, um, we're building it and we're talking about making some NA, NA products for the pub. So, you know, it's, 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 it's not a new play. You make your root beer or ginger ale or something like this, cream soda. So we were working down that pathway. Um, you know, kind of on our homebrew equipment and f- maybe, maybe make 15 or 30 gallons of time, carbonate it and sell it at our pub. Again, more just to be fully well-rounded uh, from a craft standpoint. Yeah. It's not a revenue play. Um, but here we are. We're like, wait, we, we got all these old 20, 40-barrel fermenters out back, and we've got this, and we've got that. And so um, – So are you making non-alcoholic beer, or are you just making sodas and root beers and that kind of non-alcoholic product? Well, it's shipped, yeah. So we decided to put a, a project together. We don't, we're not calling them sodas. We're running about 50 calories. We call them elixirs. So um, we're running a lemon ginger, um, um, passion fruit orange, and we actually make a king a cola, straight up, uh, grown, you know, just straight up cola. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a very volatile yet emerging space, which is the CBD. So we take the CBD, put it in these elixirs. Oh. Um, they're super tasty. And that's kind of been a side project. The funny, it's, it's just interesting that after all these years, you know, Boneyard does have a can out there. It's non-alcoholic <laughs> CBD elixir. Uh, who would have thought? Who would have thought? If people want to learn more about Boneyard, Tony, where do they find, uh, where do they find you? Where do they find Boneyard? Well, come on by here. We'll have a beer and we'll chat. <laughs> um, but of course, you know, the usual social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook. Um, yeah. I'm a little too old for all that stuff, although I have been amazed to watch how what a good vehicle that is to get your message out. Sure. Um, of course, we've got our pub here in Bend. And um, the more simple platform is just find the beer out somewhere between Seattle and San Francisco. On if, draft. Don't look for it in yeah. a package store. It's uh, Yeah, you're going to have to. Mm. have someone pour it for you yeah that's kind of the what we're up to cool cool well i appreciate you uh talking with me on the podcast today thank you jamie thanks for coming by uh before we get out of here uh, uh gnd chillers is known for their innovative modular designs and tony can vouch for them <laughs> <laughs> old orchard supplies craft juice blends from the heart of beer city usa ss Brewtech has a team that draws on strong functional backgrounds and Captain Pabst Seabird IPA is available in Wisconsin and Chicago. Um, we'll be back next week with another new episode. If you're not a subscriber to beer uh, to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button, and become a subscriber. Go back and look through the old archives. I think it's issue 20 of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for uh, Tony's in-depth uh, <laughs> Uh, explanation of his thought process on designing recipes uh it's definitely worth a read uh, again we'll be back next week with another episode uh cheers tony thanks again thank you jamie and cheers to everybody out there this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craft beer brew